We're beginning a new series this morning. It will last for the next four weeks. And we're going to be looking at the nature of parables. In particular, we're going to be looking at one parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. After today, for the next three weeks, we will use the same preaching text from the Gospels, the story of the Good Samaritan, and look at it in three different ways. But today, as we begin, I would like to talk about the nature of parables, how we read them, and what they are meant for. So will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. My wife likes to laugh at me, or probably more accurately, roll her eyes, when I start talking about how fascinated I am, how things are made, or what it took to get something to the way it is. For example, we were in Nashville the past two days, and I was so fascinated that as you looked out across the skyline from the roof where we were looking out at the city, the conference center has grass on top of it. There's grass growing on top of a concrete roof. And I started asking, how did that grass get there? Well, obviously somebody put it there, but why? Is it supposed to cool the roof? How do they grow grass on top of a concrete building? I can't even grow grass in my backyard. And so I was going through all these questions and I was like, what do you think? She's like, oh yeah, there's grass on the roof. Cool. That was it. End of the conversation. But my wife is a master baker. Though, though our minds don't work the same, she does understand something that I don't necessarily understand, and that is the science of making the perfect dessert. When she bakes a cake, it is the best cake. It's always the best cake, because that's what I'm supposed to say, but it actually is. You see, I, I am equally fascinated by how things are made. So for a cake, a cake is some, simply a combination of refined flour, some shortening, sweetening, eggs, milk, leavening agent, and some flavoring, right? That is what makes a cake. It usually comes either in a rectangle or centrical shape. If that is what you have in front of you, objectively, you have a cake. The best cake is obviously the cookie cake, which is a hybrid of the two best desserts, cookies and cakes. But no matter which one is your favorite, it can fit neatly into the category of cake. We can define it, we can understand it, we can observe it, and we can talk about it in its totality. Something else I find fascinating is how something became the way it is. Like Google, for example. Do you know where the name Google comes from? Why the thing that is now most ubiquitous with our unanswered questions is called what it is? There's a story in Business Insider a few years back and it says, according to Sanford's David Kohler and Google's own website, Larry Page and Sergey Brin's 1996 foray into the world of search engines was initially called Backrub. Do you know that? Well, how different would it be today if you didn't know something? Instead of somebody telling you to Google it, they said Backrub it. That'd just be strange. But it was called Backrub because it analyzed the back links of a website to understand how important a website was and what other sites were related to it. But in 1997, the founders decided the back rub was not a good enough name. And the, Google, the name Google actually came from a graduate student who studied alongside the founders. His name was Sean Anderson, and he suggested the word Googleplex. 
Googleplex. It's a big number. Sergey Brin liked it so much and so did Paige that they decided that they wanted to go in that direction, but they said, we're going to call it Google. Because a Google is a digit one followed by a hundred zeros. It's a big, big number. But a Googleplex is one followed by a Google zeros. But the difference is this Google is spelled G-O-O-G-O-L. So whenever the founders went to see if that domain name had been taken, they accidentally typed G-O-O-G-L-E and they liked it even better. So Google was actually an accident. The way we got one of the most famous websites was because of a typo. I'm fascinated by things like this. Understanding where things come from, discovering etymologies, observing things that can be created. But let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to explain the kingdom of heaven? Or has anyone ever tried to explain to you the kingdom of heaven? I want to read to you the passage that comes after the one we just read from Matthew's gospel. Jesus is talking to those that are present. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, the largest garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. And he told them still another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds. She mixed it into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke to all these things into the crowd through parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Did you notice the difference between those earlier explanations of cake and Google and the explanation of the kingdom of God. Those first two, like most explanations on earth, rely on exact details to explain in totality what is trying to be described. This is exactly how you make a cake. You take these ingredients and you make it like this. This is exactly where Google got its name from. This is who created it. This is when it happened. But when Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like you notice that? Not, this is exactly what the kingdom is. Or here's the totality of everything you need to know about the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he gives multiple things that the kingdom of heaven is like. And these things aren't even really related. A mustard seed and yeast. They're not related in the same way eggs and flour are. I mean, he goes on to describe it as a pearl. So you've got the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. It's like a pearl. It's like these women who are standing with their lamps lit. When you add them all up, it doesn't necessarily make sense. He says it's like an old woman who loses a coin or a person who sells everything. The kingdom of heaven is light. Jesus spends the better part of his life and ministry trying to explain and to show what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the reason he can't come out and exactly say what it is is because we wouldn't understand it. He cannot say this is exactly what the kingdom is because we can't imagine something that is so vastly different than our own experience. The kingdom of heaven is beyond 
our concepts of imagining, that to try to describe it in its totality would be impossible. So he uses analogies and metaphors to try to help us understand what the kingdom is like. And he uses a very particular version of storytelling to give these analogies and metaphors that we call parables. Anytime he tries to explain the kingdom of God, he does so by telling a parable, using a parable to tell a story. And our modern sensibilities can be quite frustrated by this. If you were to ask me, hey Woods, when is your anniversary or when is your birthday? And I just started telling you a story that had nothing to do with the answers to that, it would be kind of strange, wouldn't it? That's what often happens to Jesus. As we'll see in the future weeks, a lawyer asks him, who is my neighbor? And then he goes into a story about a guy on the side of the road. Jesus rarely conforms to any of our preconceived notions that we think he should conform to. He doesn't give straight answers. He tells parables. Instead of direct explanations, he uses these parables. And if C.H. Dodd was right when he once said, the purpose of parables is to tease the mind into active thought, then by only speaking about the kingdom in this way, Jesus is trying to tease our minds into an active thinking about God's kingdom. By using parables, Jesus is trying to open up our imaginations to help remove some of the things that we thought to be true so that we can make way for what God wants to show us. The difficulty and the beauty of this reality lies in the fact that not all of our minds work the same. You and I, to hear the same story, we might not land in the same place. Have you ever heard a, a story alongside your friend or your spouse, significant other, and y'all both were led to very different conclusions? Imagine what happens when the entire church tries to hear these parables of Jesus that are already a little peculiar, and we try to derive meaning from them. This kind of thing happens all the time, right, when you hear a story and end in a different place? I'm very familiar with all sorts of storytelling lately because I have a three-year-old and an 11-month-old, and storytelling is kind of the name of the game. We do a lot of reading at nighttime and a lot of children's books. Have you ever heard the story of the three little pigs? I'm sure you have. It's pretty common. It's about a big bad wolf who's coming along and he blows down the houses of the first two little pigs because their houses are made of straw and sticks, and then he gets to the house of the third pig and he tries to blow it down, but he can't because it's made out of bricks. And then he goes sulking off. I'm sure you've heard that story, but if I were to ask everyone in this room, what is the meaning of the three little pigs story? I bet we'd all come to different understandings, to different places. We'd all land somewhere, maybe far left field of where our neighbor might be. Some of us might say, well, the meaning of this story is you're supposed to build your house out of sturdy materials. Both metaphorically, you know, you want to build your life on a strong foundation and you need to have your house. We're in a hurricane zone. People have a strong foundation, right? Maybe you would hear this story and you think it's fine if you have cheap stuff, as long as your friends have nice stuff, right? Maybe you hear this story from the wolf's perspective and you think, well, just because something happened one way before doesn't mean it'll happen that same way again. Never underestimate your opponent. We could go on and on. We could all land in different places about what this story is trying to teach us, but that's the point, that we would all land in different places. The parables do that same thing. 
When Jesus tells a parable and we hear it, it might mean something very different to me than it means to you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, the parable might mean something different to you now than it did when you read it before or than when you'll read it again later. That's the power of Jesus' storytelling through these parables. This is the particular way that God is trying to show us the realities of the kingdom of heaven. And if that's the case, then we have to have our mind open to there might be more than one possible meaning, more than one thing alone that we're supposed to derive. And so for the next three weeks after today, we will be doing that exact exercise. We will be turning the gym, looking through different angles, different lenses at one parable. We'll read the same text three times and read it and try to think about it from different perspectives of characters in the stories or what it would be like to be there hearing it when Jesus is telling it. But before we do that and before we move on and before I end the sermon today, I would like to talk just a moment about the nature of these parables. These things that are somewhat universal truths about what the parables are trying to do. And if you are interested, there's a great video on thebibleproject.com that talks more about these parables. The first thing that's helpful for us to know is that parables show us the surprise of God's kingdom. You see, the Israelites were waiting for a king. In the first century when Jesus comes onto the scene, the people had been waiting for centuries for a Messiah to come and restore them to their former glory. Their country was occupied by the Romans. They had twice been exiled from their homeland. They were a people who were oppressed and they were expecting this great gladiator, victorious person to come with a sword on a, on a white horse and defeat the Roman army and just bring Israel back to being the, the dominant force in the land. The kingdom of heaven is surprising. When Jesus comes, he's a very different kind of king. If you were a Jew in the first century, you were waiting around for somebody who would take over a palace. But the king we know that God sent was born in a stable. He wasn't rich, but he was poor. He didn't ride a steed, but a donkey. The parables help illuminate the point that everything about Jesus and everything about the kingdom of heaven is unexpected. It's surprising. And that's still true for us today. When you read a parable, it shouldn't lead you to believe something you already believe. It should surprise you. The second thing about parables is that they show us the upside down values of God's kingdom. These parables, they are story forms of things that compare and contrast. The world and society, they have certain things that they value, that it values, and the parables show us how God values different things. It shows us how something in the world might be a certain way and contrasts it with the way in which the kingdom says it should be. Values in the kingdom are different than values on the earth. The world says it's important for you to be strong, but the parables show that God cares for the weak. If we had it our way, we'd all be wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. But in the parables, Jesus shows us how God cares for the poor. And it seems like to make it in today's day and age, much like in the first century, you have to have a great deal of hubris. Not just competence, 
But extreme pride seems to be a sign of a strong value in our society. But God is raising up the humble, and the parables show us the virtue of humility. The last thing the parables show us is that the kingdom of God requires a decision. Once we encounter the kingdom, we have to decide something for ourselves. There's this one parable where a rich man throws a banquet and he invites all these well-to-do esteemed guests and they all turn him down. And so he sends his servants out into the land and tells them to invite anybody. Let everybody come. And this parable shows us how God gives grace to all people. Everyone has the invitation to experience the kingdom. But that also means everybody gets to decide for ourselves if we will accept it, if we will live into it. The parables put the listeners in positions to where they have to respond to the encounter of the kingdom. When we read these parables, we are put into a position of getting to decide to follow Jesus or to ignore and deny the grace given to each of us. So I hope you'll join us these next few weeks as we practice this exercise of reading the parables together. As we look at the story of the Good Samaritan and we imagine what it means for our lives at different ways and at different times. The last thing I want to say this morning about parables and the thing I want to leave us with as we set up this series is that for a parable to have an impact on your life, you have to be willing to be transformed. You have to be open to the possibility that this might change you. That these stories might alter the way you think. They might change the way you behave. They might impact the way you live your life. Because that's what God wants. God does not want to come alongside us just to keep us exactly where we are. We say we're on the path to sanctification. We are trying to be better tomorrow than we are today, just as today we are better than we were yesterday. But for that to be the case, you have to be willing to change. Because the parables are trying to transform. They are meant not just to be listened to, but to be heard. Because a lot of people listen to Jesus' parables. As our Old Testament lesson said, that some have their minds closed. As the New Testament gospel lesson said, that not everybody understood as we've heard about and sung about all morning today. Lots of people hear the parables, but that doesn't mean everybody has heard what they're trying to say. For Jesus, the parables that he offers, they have the potential to reveal to those who are open to it or to conceal to those who are not. Verse one of what we read today says, lots of people listened, but by the time we get to verse 17, he says, but not everybody heard. The impact of these parables and of Jesus' words on our lives have to do with the openness we have to receive them more than they do the content of the stories themselves. The kingdom of God is not trying to keep us where we are, but to take us to where God wants us to be. I pray 
that we will be a people who want to continue being transformed. That we didn't just encounter Jesus once and that was the end. But that we come to church expecting that we might leave different than how we got here. That when we encounter Jesus, we recognize the possibility that it might impact our lives. That we might have to change. That we might encounter something we never expected. Because that's what the kingdom of God is. It's surprising. It's upside down. And it requires a decision. So may we have the pride to imagine that we don't know all the things that we need to know, but that God does. And may we encounter these surprising upside down stories together and choose to discover the ways in which we can experience the kingdom of heaven here on earth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.